listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, would you grab your Bibles this morning and open up to the book of James? James chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the last two verses in the book of James, verses 19 and 20. So we're in this series called Life in the Church, and it's very practical. We're looking at just doctrines that affect us as a people. We're picking them up and looking at them afresh. And so we started with baptism, then we moved into church membership, and last week we, we spent our time considering eldership. And so if you have missed some of those sermons, I would encourage you to go online. You can go on our YouTube channel and check those sermons out. They're important as we're setting a, a vision for the future of what life at Fort William looks like. And we've set up a few ways that you can tangibly respond in obedience to these sermons. Um, so baptism is how we respond to the gospel. When the gospel is preached, the commands are given. Believe, repent, be baptized. And so if you haven't obeyed that command, I would even urge you this morning to talk to me or one of the elders, Mike or or Bill, and uh, have a conversation about that so that you might respond obediently to Jesus. And there's an opportunity to respond obediently to the call of church membership. So if you saw in the email um, this last week, we're going to have a church membership class in October. And so you can respond obediently to that message as well. And the first step of becoming a member is taking a membership class. So let's set our attention on God's word this morning. James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask now that you would use your word and that your word would have its way with us. We ask now that in this moment, something decisive would happen. You would change our hearts, and that you would change our minds, and that you would incline our wills toward you. We need you to act, and so we call upon you now. Bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've worked through uh, a few different topics in this sermon series, Life in the Church, and now we're going to look at the topic of church discipline. And so right from the get-go, that phrase makes us all a bit uncomfortable, church discipline. And it's important to acknowledge that fact right from the beginning, beginning that it does make us a bit uncomfortable because we've all had different experiences with, with church discipline. Some of us have firsthand knowledge of church discipline. Your education was when you were sitting in the pews at a members meeting and a church discipline case was set before you. Others of us don't have firsthand experience with church discipline. Sadly, it's not practiced in very many churches. And so perhaps your only dealing with church discipline is in books or movies or literature. Perhaps the only time you've heard of church discipline is when you, you read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. So on account of this, we all come together today with different thoughts and feelings about church discipline. I say that phrase and some of you, you recoil at that, that word. Why? Because you've witnessed a real-life case of church discipline, and for some reason or another, it didn't go well. There was trouble, there was tension, there was gossip, bitterness. 
And so you recoil. You don't want to go there again. That wasn't pleasant. Others of us object. Church discipline? What does church discipline mean? Well, it means judging and excommunication and discipline. Well, how does that, how does that fit with Jesus? And so some of us are disputing in our heads. That just doesn't seem to be the, the way of Christianity. Others of us are just confused. We've never heard of church discipline before. Well, what is this all about? What is this all about? It sounds negative. I get bad vibes. But here's the thing. No matter what our feelings are, how we're reacting to church discipline, when you walk through the scriptures, the scriptures call for church discipline. It, it's taught in the scriptures. For example, Jesus authorizes the church to discipline. So you read Matthew chapter 16, and then you read Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus says this to the church, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus teaches it, and he authorizes the church to do it. And then as we read on in the New Testament, we go to, to Paul's letters, we find Paul talking about church discipline with the various churches that he planted and cares for. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says to the Corinthians, purge the evil person from among you. He's talking about excommunication. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us. And we could keep listing off examples from Paul's letters about this. But as we start this sermon on church discipline, we find ourselves staring at two realities. One reality is this. Church discipline makes us feel uncomfortable. But on the other hand, we look into our Bibles and we see that the scriptures call for us to practice church discipline. If we're going to be a church that follows the word, we're going to be a church that practices this thing. And so the question is, well, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? We're uncomfortable, but it's in the words. Or to be more precise, how do, we, how do we move to a place as a people where we don't just begrudgingly accept the truth of church discipline, but we begin to embrace it, and not only embrace it, but to practice it as Jesus would have us? That's our question for this morning. How do we move forward as God's people? Well, I think to move forward, we need to do two things. The first thing we need to do is dig down deep and get at the foundations of church discipline. Essentially, we need to dig down and ask the all-important question, why? Why? Why church discipline? Why does Jesus think we need this? Why should we care? Why should we, we practice it? And to find answers to this question, we're going to turn to James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. We're going to do a second thing as well. We need to take a look at church discipline itself. And this can be boiled down to another simple question. We're going to ask why, and then we're going to ask what. What is church discipline? What isn't church discipline? And what we're going to aim for here in this question is as a a nuts and bolts explanation of church discipline, how it should function. And we're going to look at definitions and, and principles and procedures. So let's start with the first question, why? So grab your Bibles, look down at them. Let's read James' words again. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. James writes, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So just think with me a few moments about these verses and where we find them in the book of James. So the book of James is five chapters long and these verses come at the very end of James' letter. And so for five chapters, James has been instructing the church about how to live out their faith in Jesus. 
And so he's been touching on some very practical matters, how you speak, the use of your tongue. He's talked about hypocrisy, impartiality. He's talked about suffering and pride. And so after all of this practical instruction about the Christian life, this is how James signs off his letter with these last two verses. These are the last instructions that James gives to the church. That's strange, isn't it? He doesn't close this letter by wishing them health or a good day. He doesn't say to them, as we often say when someone leaves, drive safe. He doesn't end on a high note. Instead, he ends this letter by having a frank conversation with these Christians about, about sin. And so these words are sobering. And it's when we start to dig into these words that James give us, we can really start to understand the why of church discipline. And so we're going to look at these two verses, and I'm going to point out four realities that will lead us to see the why of church discipline. So the first reality is this that we see in James' two last verses. It's this. We are prone to wander. We are a people who are prone to wander. So our hearts are fickle. They're unpredictable. They're unreliable. We've heard the great hymn, Robert Robinson, Come Thou Fount. Remember this stanza? He says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you understand what Robinson is talking about in that hymn? He knows something about himself and he doesn't trust himself, not even for a second. He knows the working of his own heart. Left to himself, he does what? He, he wanders. If he's left to himself, he's going to leave God. If he's left to himself, he's going to make a wreck out of his own, his own life. And so what, he, what does he do in this song? Well, he cries out to God. He, he cries out to God, won't you capture me with your grace? Won't you tie my heart down? Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And this is the, the understanding of the human nature that is in James' last two verses. Look at the text again, verse 19. Notice not just what James says, but how he goes about saying it. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, well, according to James, wandering from the truth is not a reality that we should call unusual or strange. James isn't giving us instructions about how to, how to act in the event of a, a zombie apocalypse, something that's never going to happen. But here are a few instructions just in case it does. Rather, as we see in this text, wandering is something that, that happens in the life of the church and we should expect it to happen so much so that as a church, James is writing to them so that they would know how to act and react when someone wanders away from the truth. And so we ask, well, why church discipline? James answers, because we are a people prone to wander from the truth. And we need to press in on this. James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. And so as we think about this, this is a, a possibility for any of us. And this has to be stressed. No matter your track record, what it's been in the past, you can wander. Remember King David. He had up to a certain point in his life lived a life pleasing to God. He was a holy, obedient man. And it's stressed as you read First and Second Samuel. But one day he he gets up on top of the rooftop of his house and he sees a woman bathing. And guess what? He, he wanders from the truth. A godly man. Doesn't matter how much knowledge or wisdom that you've accumulated. You can know so much about God and his word. 
you can still wander. Remember David's son, Solomon. He had more wisdom than anyone else. He had greater insight into the way the world works and what God is doing. But what happened to him? He wandered from the truth. He yoked his heart to foreign wives and their idols. And he left behind God. And it doesn't matter what gifts God has given you. You might be able to speak with the tongue of angels. You might be able to serve and and suffer and give your body up as one to be burned. But you can still wander. You can still wander. No one is exempt from this. And James wants us to see this. Anyone can wander because we are prone to wander. This gives way to reality number two. Wandering leads to death. And so we see it in the text, we are prone to wander and no one is exempt from wandering. But here's the problem, we are our children of the 24-hour news cycle. Day after day we get bad news and we, we sit there in front of the TV or we look at our phones and we, we see the news. Every day it seems to get worse, there's another catastrophe to, to look at. And what happens to our souls? Well, we become desensitized to all the trouble happening around us. We're no longer moved by it, we're actually kind of entertained by it. But James won't let us feel this way about wandering from the truth. He is working in these verses so that we would not become desensitized to the peril of wandering. Look at verse 20. James writes, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So it's no secret that when we we sin, when we turn away from God's will and ways, We put ourselves in the path of peril. Sin can wreck families. It can destroy your health. It can can squander your money. But James wants us to see the real issue at work in wandering in sin, and it's this, it's death. It's death. And to be clear, James wants us to understand this in its fullest extent. So what does James mean by death? Well, he means this for sure, that at some point your lungs are going to stop breathing, your brain is going to stop thinking, Your heart's going to stop beating. But James is pointing to a deeper, greater reality than just that. He's talking about death as as judgment. To enter into death for James means to be cut off from the living and goodness and kindness of God. What a terrifying reality to consider, to be cut off from the goodness of God. We live in the age of common grace and we experience so many good gifts all of the time. But there's a coming day when the day of common grace will, will end. In the second death, the sinner will never experience a single ounce of God's goodness or kindness or generosity again. Just try to imagine life without God's goodness. There won't be a good gift to experience. There won't be a sunset. There won't be a sunrise. There won't be that nice dessert at the end of the day. There won't be an embrace of a loved one. There will be nothing good for you to enjoy. There will be no comfort, there will be no balm, there will be no rest, there will be no joy. Even worse, we have to understand when James talks about death, he means this, the sinner will be the object of God's infinite and holy wrath forever. God's going to aim his displeasure at the sinner. And the sinner is going to tangibly feel God's displeasure bodily, emotionally, spiritually, forever. And so we ask, well, Why church discipline? Why would we want to do this? And the answer is right in front of us. Because we don't want people to die an eternal death. 
We don't want people to die. That's why we're going to do it. And notice what James has done for us. He, he clears up our vision. There's so many things that cloud our vision as we, we think about life in the church. But, but James s- centers our attention. He says there's death. What ought to concern us as God's people? What ought to cause us to fear and tremble? James writes, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. James points out to us another reality, and it's this, intervention leads to life. So we can keep putting the pieces together. We're prone to wander. No one is exempt. Wandering unchecked leads to to death, but it's here that, that James reveals that something can break up this equation and bring a different outcome. Wandering doesn't lead to death if there's intervention. And so James uses the phrase, bring back, and he says this twice, once in verse 19 and then in verse 20. And with this phrase, James is giving us a a vivid picture of what's going on. So we can think about this and picture it in our minds. There's a man wandering from the truth. And there he goes. He's off the path and he's charting his own path. And unbeknownst to him, he's traveling towards what? He's traveling towards death. That's where he's going to end up. But someone is moved and runs after this man. He's moved and he runs after and he chases him down and he meets him and he does what? He, he turns him back. The man doesn't make it to his destination of death. He doesn't die in his sins. Why? Because another man goes and chases him down and pulls him off of this path. And so we ask, why church discipline? Because it's one of the ways we intervene in the lives of others to save them from death. Here's a fourth reality that we need to see from James. Intervention is a gospel work. This is a gospel work. And so we have to be clear about the nature of this intervention. And this is where we have the tendency to go wrong and to think wrong about intervention and church discipline. So let's go back and think through James' imagery. He's using this this imagery of bring back. So there's that man. He goes off the path. He's, He's headed towards death. He doesn't know it, but he's going that way. And so another man sees him and runs after him. He's chasing him down. And finally, he catches up with the man. And we ask, well, what happens when the man catches up with the wanderer? What happens? What happens at this decisive moment? Does the one going to turn him back, grab his club, whack him over the head, unconscious, and drag him back to the truth? Is intervention an act of assault? That might seem silly to you this morning and a bit odd. But if we stop and take stock of ourselves, we often tend to think of church discipline and intervention in those terms. But that isn't what James has in mind when he's picturing this work of turning others back. So let's listen to James. Go to verse 20 and listen to what he says. This is what happens when we intervene in the life of sinners. He says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so we're keen Bible readers. And we listen to verse 21 and we say, well, I think I've heard those words before somewhere. Save the sinner. Save his soul from death. Where have we heard that? Well, we've heard that in the gospel story. Remember Matthew chapter 1 verse 21? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. We remember the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. Jesus tells us what he's come into this world to do. He says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Interesting. 
James also uses another phrase in verse 20. He says, cover a multitude of sins. And so when we intervene in the lives of others, people's sins are covered. This doesn't mean we're, we're covering up people's sins so that it just gets pushed away and we don't talk about it. That's not what James has in mind. It's not a, a cover-up, a conspiracy. He's talking about forgiveness. We've heard this word before, Psalm 32, verse 1. You remember that verse? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so James' word choice should make us stop in our tracks. How does intervention lead to salvation? How does intervention lead to the covering, to the forgiveness of sins? Well, the answer is so simple. It's right in front of us. This intervention must be controlled and constrained by the gospel message. During intervention, the truth about Jesus must be proclaimed and set forth. That's what intervention is all about. That's how we turn people back from their sins. Not with a club, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a different way to think about intervention. There's that man wandering from the truth. And what is he actually doing? Well, he's leaving behind the gospel. Perhaps he's just neglecting it. Or perhaps he's, he's will, willfully turning away from it. But what does the church of Jesus do when this happens? They chase down the individual and they preach the gospel to them. They press the sinner with the news about Jesus. What Jesus has accomplished, his death, his resurrection, his kingship in heaven, now ruling and reigning over all things. And what do they do? They call for faith. They call for repentance. They call for obedience to King Jesus. And so we ask, well, why church discipline? Because it's one more way that we bring the gospel to sinners who desperately need to hear the message one more time. So those are the four realities. And I hope you can see why we started with James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. And from these two verses, I hope you can see that church discipline is not a matter of formal and rigid proceedings. It isn't a matter of public shaming or spectacle. It isn't about retribution, making someone pay for their sins. Rather, it's about rescue and redemption, as James puts it in these two verses. And the truth of it is we will never understand church discipline or be able to practice it unless these four realities from these two verses sink into our souls and begin to change the way we think about life. We have to get it. We have to really own that we are prone to wander. And not one of us is exempt from that equation. We have to own and believe that wandering leads to death. And that there is real death to be experienced. We have to know and believe that intervention leads to life. And intervention is all about the gospel. Preaching and demanding faith and repentance. And so that's the question, why? Why church discipline? And James teaches us why. And so we've got a second question to consider as well, and that's what. What is church discipline? What is church discipline? What isn't church discipline? And so we need a nuts and bolts explanation. We need to open up like a a manual and see what the Lord has for us. So I want to set before you a few definitions a few principles and procedures that should help clarify this in our minds. It's going to be brief, but it'll get us on the right foot. So a definition, we're asking what is church discipline? So to begin with, we have to place discipline in the context of discipleship. 
So discipline in discipleship takes place informally all of the time. So it happens Sunday morning. It's happening right now when the scriptures are, op- scriptures are opened up and preached and taught. We're being disciplined. God is correcting us. He's admonishing us. He's at times rebuking us and changing us. Discipline's happening right now. It happens in casual conversations. I know this happens to me. You're sitting down with a brother or sister in Jesus and they're sharing about how they're, they're serving their neighbors and what happens. Discipline's happening to my own heart as I'm, as I'm convicted afresh of do I really love my neighbors like this person does? And it happens in private conversation. We intentionally speak the word of God into each other's lives for the purpose of change and growth. That's all a part of, of discipline. But what I describe there is a, a broad picture of discipline. But what we need to do is focus in on church discipline proper. And so church discipline proper is this. Here's a definition. Church discipline proper is when the church removes someone from membership, prohibits them to participate in the Lord's Supper, and treats them as an unbeliever. So church discipline proper is when the church removes someone from membership, prohibits them to participate in the Lord's Supper, and treats them as an unbeliever. And so this is how the scriptures speak of church discipline proper. So we see in Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul instructs the church to expel this man from their midst who was living in flagrant sin. We see Jesus talk this way in Matthew chapter 18, this, this person who refuses to repent after many rounds of conversation and intervention. Jesus tells the church to do what? Treat him as a tax collector and Gentile. And really, this might prove helpful for us. We should think of church discipline as the undoing of church membership. So in church membership, we consider the individual's profession of faith. Yes, they understand the gospel. Yes, it seems from what we can see as we watch them that they're really trusting in the gospel. Even more as we look at their lives, they're living out the truth of Christianity. Jesus is their Lord. We can see them walking obediently to Jesus. But in church discipline, the church is seeing the opposite things take place. No longer does that profession seem credible anymore. No longer does it seem like they're really trusting in Jesus anymore. No longer does that individual's life attest to the saving power of the gospel because they are so overrun with sin. So that's the definition. Now we can focus in on some procedures. And the question is this, when should the church discipline? When should the church bring formal discipline against an individual? And I think this is the most important question to consider. When do we need to take action? So I want to give you two warnings before I give you my answer. And the first warning is this. We should not treat church discipline as a pitch count. So if you watch baseball, you know that the batter gets, what, three strikes, and then they're out. But church discipline isn't like this. It's not tallying up someone's imperfections and their sins and then looking at that brother or sister and saying, Brother, sister, you've exceeded your limit for sin. We're now going to cast you out of the church. Three strikes and you're out. No, we have to remember this conversation between Jesus and Peter. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Peter thinks he's being generous here. He's being sinned against seven times. I'll forgive him seven times. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So church discipline isn't a pitch count. It's not three strikes and you're out. Second, we shouldn't think of church discipline as a law code. So if you think about the law code, it's black and white. 
If you steal from someone, you're liable to be fined or jailed. If you embezzle money from a corporation that you're working at, you're going to be thrown in jail. But we don't discipline as a church just because someone committed a sin. In fact, when you study the New Testament closely, the New Testament doesn't give us a definitive list of sins for the sake of discipline. You sinned here, now discipline is coming your way. There isn't an authorized checklist. And so here's the question, well, when do we discipline? When do we formally do this work? Well, one modern writer puts it like this, and I think what he says is really helpful. He says, Formal church discipline is the appropriate course of action whenever a church member's failure to represent Jesus becomes so characteristic and habitual that the church no longer believes that he or she is a Christian. So it's not a pitch count. It's not a law code. But we're looking at someone's life, and when their life becomes so characteristic and habitual that they're failing to represent Jesus, we say, I think now is the time to do church discipline. And so this is clarifying for us. We are looking to see if this person is responding to sin as a Christian should. And it's no secret that Christians sin. We sin all of the time. But the question whether church discipline should be pursued is this. Well, what is this individual doing with their sin? Is there any fruit of repentance to be seen? Is there any faith in their heart leaning in towards Christ? Is there any godly grief, just, just an ounce or two in their hearts about what they have done or what they are doing? Is there any evidence of the Spirit's work in their life? Is there any desire to make change or to grow in holiness? Or has hard-heartedness and callousness become so characteristic of this person that they will not receive anything from anyone? So that's when we do church discipline, when they stop, when, a, when an individual stops representing Jesus and they stop re- representing Jesus in such a way that we can no longer take them seriously to claim that they're Christians. And so we have to ask now, well, what does this look like? What does it look like to practice church discipline? And I just want to give you a few, a few words that should characterize church discipline in the body of Christ. So the first word is, is patience. Patience. And patience is necessary because we're not the umpire standing behind home plate calling balls and strikes. Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. Rather, we're looking at, in church discipline at this person's whole life. We're looking to see if there's a real root of godliness there. Because if there is a root of godliness, we cannot just willy-nilly cast them out. We're looking to see if there's actual faith and repentance there. And patience is necessary because often it takes a long time to sort through what's actually going on in someone's heart, looking at the context of their whole life. So we need patience, and coupled with patience, we need wisdom. And we need wisdom because there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to discipline. No two Christians are the same. Everyone comes from a different background, different family, different life experiences. In fact, each one of us are at a different point in the Christian life, and and that all factors into the matter of church discipline, when we should discipline, how we should discipline. The new believer is treated differently than the believer who's followed Jesus for 30 years. We, We treat their sins a bit differently, don't we? And so we need wisdom about how to go about church discipline. We need patience, we need wisdom, 
we also need optimism. And so it's tough to deal with people's sins, especially so when there's denial, when there's a cold heart on the other end of the line. We have to remember this. Our hope is not in our own ability to persuade others. Our hope is not even in the person we're trying to minister to. Rather, our hope is in God. God may give repentance. Our God is the God who brings dead to life. And so we can remain optimistic even when it seems that a brother or sister is no longer following after Jesus. We can remain optimistic because we know who our God is. And this changes the way we do church discipline. We go with optimism, believing that the Lord will work in and through what we do. So patience, wisdom, optimism, courage. Church discipline takes courage to confront or intervene, to speak sound gospel words to someone else, to call for faith and repentance is not easy to do. Especially so in our day. We live in a day where we idolize acceptance and a welcoming embrace. At the end of the day, it's hard to say to someone, we can't see the grace of God in your life. Can't see it. And it's harder even to do something about it. And so we need courage. We need to ask God that he would fill us with courage. And so we need patience. We need wisdom. We need optimism. We need courage. And we also need, we need love. And so church discipline is an act of gospel love. We can put it like this, to leave someone wandering in their sins is to hate them, is to hate them, to brutally hate them, because what's going to happen to them, they're going to die in their sins. But to intervene, to act, to speak sound gospel words is to love their souls, even though they might not think so. And so there we have church discipline. We've answered the question why, we've answered the question what. And now what we need to do is pray and ask that God would help us. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your word, how it challenges us and changes us. We're thankful for church discipline and that you have set up procedures so that grace might be administered to our hearts when we wander away from you. And so we pray that you would make us a faithful people to practice this even when we pray that you would incline our hearts to real love, that we would love our brothers and sisters, that we would love those around us, love them enough to speak the gospel to them. Would you help us in this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.